Bibles to Genesis 32 this morning, please. And let me remind you that there are study guides back there on the top shelf of those little wire racks back in the back. I encourage you to take those. The best thing you could possibly do was get together with another group of believers and talk about what the Lord is saying to you and what he's saying to the church. If you don't have a small group, still take a study guide, look up those scriptures, answer those questions for yourself. I believe it'll be a great benefit to you. We're returning for the next few weeks to these series we're doing in, the, in Jacob about the life of Jacob. In an observation that I was making this week, I think it's clear to everybody who's paying attention that our society is in a desperate mess and uh, there is just crippling despair in the lives of people everywhere. Frankly, I grew up in a different world. And I know that people were sad and they struggled back then, but it seems to me this, this despair in our culture seems to be something new. But when we look in Genesis 32, we see that it's not. I've been attempting to show you in this series on the life of Jacob how um, the things that Jacob went through are very instructional for us. And we can find relevance there for our Christian living, especially... If, if we are, as I believe we are, living in the last days. Because Jacob is the poster boy for modern syndrome, this crippling despair that we see. In fact, his name means grabber. And we see that Jacob was always going for something he couldn't find. Just a quick review, Jacob was the second son by a few seconds of Isaac and Rebekah, he had a twin brother named Esau, who be, by virtue of being born before Jacob, was the rightful heir to all the things in the covenant from his grandfather Abraham. So Jacob couldn't stand being in second place, so he swindled his brother Esau out of the birthright, which was about material possessions, and then he deceived his father Isaac with the help of his mother to receive the blessing, which was about spiritual things, spiritual matters. So Esau, being a little ticked off, as all older brothers are with younger brothers, determined to kill Jacob. So Jacob fled to Haran, where his uncle Laban lived, and there found his, Laban's daughter named Rebekah, who he, I'm sorry, Rachel, who he fell instantly in love with and agreed to work for Laban seven years for the hand of Rachel, only to wake up after his wedding and find out that Leah had been substituted, the big sister. So Jacob agreed to work another seven years for Rachel's hand. So now when we left Jacob several weeks ago, he's a grown man. He has two wives, one that he loves and one that he doesn't. He has 11 sons and he's become ridiculously wealthy. But Grabber is still not happy. And now he decides that if he could just get back home, then he'll be truly happy. If he could just go back to the promised land, this itch in his spirit will finally be scratched. But Jacob is not far down the road to go back to Canaan when he receives news that his brother Esau is on the way to come meet him with 400 warriors. And Jacob's nightmare is about to come true. Now, 
I have always argued that pride is the, is the foundational sin of the human condition. All other sins that we struggle with grow out of pride. Pride was the first sin, even before the Garden of Eden, when Adam determined that he wanted to be like God and Cain killed Abel, which are the sin of pride. We see Lucifer was thrown out of heaven because of his pride. And while pride is certainly the foundational sin, I contend that if you scratch the surface and chip away a little bit of the paint on the outside of pride, right beneath the surface you'll find fear. And so far in this story, we see that Jacob was not only constantly running after something, but he was always also running from something. And I would argue that fear is a much bigger influence on our lives than we realize. In fact, I would argue that our insecurities drive us and compel us. In almost 40 years now of full-time gospel ministry, I've seen many people literally torpedo their lives and spiral down into this dark hole of despair. And as I'm walking through this crisis with them, I hear them often make the same statements over and over. Let me just share a few with you this morning. The first one I hear all the time is, I've been living a lie. Now, everybody in this place this morning would say, not me, I'm not living a lie. Well, when I met you back there at the door on the way in and I said, how are you doing? And you said, fine. But if I asked you how you're doing and you're not doing fine, you would say, fine. Because in this culture, we have been conditioned to keep up appearances. In other words, if you're not really happy, just pretend you're happy. Fake it till you make it. And it's not any different in the church. For those of us who are Christians, if we're struggling or dissatisfied or suffering, we pretend like we're okay. I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. Yeah, whatever. Here's the problem with that. Living a lie is exhausting. And as I've seen so many times, the end of that path has devastating consequences. I've literally seen people come unraveled because they're trying to fake it till they make it. And usually we don't even see, oh, I thought she was fine. I didn't know there was any problem at all. The second disclaimer I hear a lot is, I know I should be happy. Another cherished myth of our culture is that if you work hard and pay your dues and keep your nose to the grindstone, someday you'll arrive. You'll reach the pinnacle. You'll realize the American dream. And then you'll be truly happy. Here's the problem. We know that's not true. Still, though, we drive ourselves crazy pursuing happiness. And in fact, I've seen a lot of people, just like you have, that got their dream. They achieved what they thought they wanted to achieve, and then they were still dissatisfied. Well, now what? 
What do you do when you get everything you've been working so hard for and it, it doesn't make you happy? That's when a lot of times people start doing stupid, risky stuff. The third thing I hear a lot of people say right before they unravel is that someone changed the rules. See, this is one of the things about people my age. We talk a lot about the good old days, and I know you young people get sick of hearing about that, but in my day, we had rules. Like, for example, you could expect to devote yourself to a company for your entire career. At the end of your career, they would demonstrate loyalty back to you, and they'd provide a pension or some type of retirement. But nowadays, I see way too many 60-year-olds who are downsized, right, short of retirement, and, and you, you find them serving their last few working years as a greeter at Walmart or taking a small engine repair class at Votech and fixing their neighbor's lawnmowers for a few bucks. Another one of the rules from my days is that women should stay home and raise the kids and keep the house and support their husbands, and then they would enjoy life as empty nesters someday, but I've seen way too many of these clowns go off and start a new family with their 25-year-old secretary, and now mom, who's left alone, has two kids in college with no educational and no marketable skills, and what's she going to do? See? So now, what can these people count on? Somebody changed the rules. The fourth thing I hear a lot is, I cannot bring myself to forgive. And usually when you push on that a little bit, what you hear is, well, you just don't know what they did to me. And these people that can't forgive, they think their refusal to forgive is actually hurting the person who hurt them. When what we know is failure to forgive is only a, a fast track to despair. And can I just tell you, unforgiveness is simply pride in disguise. That's all it is. Think about this. Jesus often said to sick people, do you want to get well? And we think, what a stupid question. Well, it's really not because we humans love to hold on to that thing that's hurting us. And I don't know why we're that way, but we are. And the truth is healing will never come from holding on to unforgiveness. Healing only comes with vulnerability. And you'll say, Randy, you're crazy. Being vulnerable has got, got me hurt in the first place. Well, listen, opening up to Jesus and submitting to him and making ourselves vulnerable to him, being honest with him about the depth of our hurt and our anger is the only way we'll ever find healing from unforgiveness. And finally, the fifth thing I hear people say a lot is there's just no place in my life where I have control. Some of us only feel secure when we're calling the shots. We only feel secure when we have our hand on the steering wheel, when we're in control. But can I just tell you that like happiness, control also is a myth. Ask any addict. When they begin using, and the substance doesn't matter. It could be drugs or alcohol or gambling or sex or shopping. Ask any addict, and they'll tell you they first started doing that because they enjoyed it, because it was fun. But then the second stage, they'll tell you, I started doing it to hide from my pain or to escape 
the pressure. And finally, thirdly, they'll tell you, I, I began using because I had to. I had no choice. And the point is, at every single point in that downward spiral, they thought they were in control. But an addict will never be able to get help until they admit they need help. So here's the bottom line. Here's, the, here's what I'm saying with all this. We humans somehow believe that we can cope with fear intuitively. In other words, it feels like maybe this will work. I'll try this because it seems like a good idea. But that's never going to work, and here's why. Fear is not a situational problem. Fear is a spiritual problem. And there's no rationality that will help you get out of the mess you're in. Our human coping mechanisms are not capable of coping with fear. Back to the story of Jacob. His favorite means of coping with fear is by coming up with another plan, coming up with a new strategy. Let's look at Genesis 32. A lot of you will relate to this. This is verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Okay, so here's Jacob's strategy. I know what I'll do. I'll split everything I have in half, and then if Esau flies into a rage and destroys everything, I only lose half of my stuff. Human reasoning, right? So here's where Jacob is like me. After hatching his plan, then Jacob prays. Verse 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Now watch this. But you have said, Jacob reminds God, you promised I'll surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. This is so me. I pray these passionate prayers to God after I've already worked out my strategy. God, please bless my plan. Don't look at me like that. You do that too. Oh, God. After I pray this sincere prayer. This is how you should answer my prayer. This is what I'm expecting you to do. Then Jacob, being Jacob, unveils yet another plan, and it's impressive. This time, he resolves to give Esau everything. 220 goats, 220 sheep, 80 camels, 30 donkeys, and he separates them into three separate groups and assigns a messenger to each group and sends them off like a parade and says, when you encounter Esau, give him this message. These are gifts from your servant Jacob, and he's bringing up the rear. Jacob even sent his wife and children. I wonder how that went over with them. <laughs> Thanks, Dad, right? But here's the end. We read it in Genesis 32, 24. Then Jacob was left alone. 
And can I tell you, all of our great ideas for coping with our fear brings us to the same place every time. Isolation and despair. And let me ask you another question. Do you think the devil knows that? Do you think Satan is watching you on your journey and is just waiting because he knows where you're going to end up alone and in despair? Of course he does. And if Satan knows that, well, we know that God also knows it all and he must have a plan. So what does God say? What's his prescription for dealing with fear? It's actually tucked into that little prayer that Jacob prayed and it's this. Lord, remember you promised to do good to me. Lord, you gave me your word. And I'm standing on your word. And it's the same exact promise that God has made to you and me on every single page in the Bible. I've got plans for you, plans to prosper you. I'm promised to do good. And here's the thing. We know that God is true. We know that he's faithful. The problem's not with God. So we're talking about handling our fear. The question is not whether God is faithful or not. The question is whether we will rest in God's faithfulness or not. Oh, thanks. Easy to say and hard to do, right? Okay, so I'm going to send you away today with two action steps, two pieces of biblical advice that you can lean on and use. And here's the first one. Look in and not around. I love browsing in bookstores, especially used bookstores. But I found now in every bookstore I go into, the largest section by far is the self-help section. Do you have any idea why there are so many more self-help books than any other kinds of books? It's simple, because people buy more self-help books. And authors want to make money. Because we all humans, we all feel like if I could just find the right formula... If I could just get the right strategy, A, B, and C, then I'll finally arrive. Then I'll have what I'm looking for. But, but deep in our hearts, we know that doesn't work. Because, listen, becoming like Jesus is not about behavior modification. We don't become like Jesus by acting better. Becoming like Jesus is about listening to his voice and going where he leads us. Becoming like Jesus is believing what he says, especially what he says about us. Lord, remember your promise to do good to me. There's a little tiny parable that just haunts me in Matthew chapter 13. Would you please chew on this with me a little bit? Say yes. yes. Thank you. It's Matthew 13, 45. Jesus speaking says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. Okay, stop just a second. I want you to see the picture that Jesus is painting. Here's a guy at his job. This is just a person going about their vocation, doing their career. He trades in, in pearls. He buys pearls and sells pearls, okay? He's just going about his daily work. Now watch this, verse 46. When he discovered a pearl of great value... He quit his job. You see that? He sold everything he owned and bought it. So to me, Jesus seems to be saying, when it all gets too much, we talk about life in quotes. When life gets exhausting, 
And you know what I mean. Raising the kids, paying the bills, dealing with your stuff. When it all gets to be too much, you need to realize there's something bigger out there. There's something out there that we haven't found yet. And Jesus is saying, we listen to me. You're not listening to me. We spend our lives trading in trivialities. We spend the best days of our lives collecting stuff and, and achieving titles. And we make idols out of little ridiculous stuff like peer approval or a better car or even our families. We make idols out of our families. And Jesus said, you're making little stuff into big stuff. And he says, there's a hidden treasure that I'm offering you that's not even valuable, it's priceless. And here it is. The problem is you have to give up all this other stuff to get it. Turn your back all, on all your little idols. And can I just tell you here, this is the message of the gospel. Please hear me clearly. God does not love you because you're lovable. God loves you in spite of your unlovableness. And folks, it's called grace. And here it is. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, 5, God saw you and me and he knew me and he still loved me and decided having found me in my mess to send Jesus to die in my place and to redeem me and reconcile me to the Father. That's a pearl of great value. And let me just tell you that grace is better than any plan that you could ever come up with. Grace is way better than Ed McMahon showing up at your door with a big fake check. Grace is what you're looking for. And deep in our hearts, we know that it's true. Don't look around. Look in. And here's the second way we deal with our fear. Embrace process. Now, don't groan. I know we talk about process all the time, but I, I, I'm convinced. Listen, the main reason that I struggle with believing that God loves me is because I know me. Would you believe there are things about me that you don't know? But God knows, and I know that God knows that I know that God knows. And so the, the fact that he still loves me in this is just stunning to me. And I also know that the Bible is very, very clear that my salvation is not based on anything that I can do. There's no way that I could ever be good enough to earn God's favor in my life. I can't earn my salvation, and yet he offers it free to me any, anyway. I, I can't get my mind around that. How, if God knows me, how could he not be mad about me? Or at me. But here's, I hear a lot of church people say something like this. If God loves me so much, why is this bad stuff still happening to me? If God loves me so much, why is it so hard for me to get ahead in life? Haven't you read the headlines? How could God love us? There's a famous verse in 1 John 4, and we can all quote it. And it goes like this, perfect love casts out all fear. We know that verse, don't we? The problem is we don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. 
I've heard a hundred sermons on 1 John 4.18, and none of the preachers that I heard knows what it means. <laughs> so what we're going to do, we're going to go look at the, at the setting and see if we can kind of tear this apart and understand a little bit. Look at verse 17 of 1 John chapter 4. Watch this. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. John is describing this, this life. Listen, I can't even. He's saying we as Christ followers are supposed to be living a life where we stand boldly before God in the day of judgment, absolutely without fear. <gasps> and how do we do that? He says our love grows as we live in God. Okay, so what does as we live in God mean? Then we face no fear on judgment day because we live like Jesus here in this world. This is exactly what I mean by embrace process. Because I know me and I know that Jesus can't love me like I am, but I also absolutely know that he's changing me and transforming me. So this love that John is talking about grows as I listen to his voice and as I submit to his direction and as a little tiny bit day by day by day I obey self rather than me. I mean I obey him rather than self. I enthrone him rather than me. Okay, look at verse 18. This is just getting good. 1 John 4, 18. This love we're talking about, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and this shows we haven't fully experienced his love. Okay, so how do we get to that place where I'm fully, painfully aware of my sinfulness and yet absolutely confident in God's love for me? The way we get there is by transformation. It's process. Process. You see, I understand, I believe that right now today, Jesus is absolutely crazy about me. I also know that Jesus is patient with me because that's what the Word says. And I also know that Jesus is molding me into His image day by day. And while I have all that information here, I also know that I'm such a loser. But I know what the Word says. So as I commit to Him and cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and submit to His direction, I am being transformed into that love that Jesus had for me that takes away all fear. All right, let me, let me wrap this up. I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this for you. When Jason and I were first married, we got a bunch of china, a set of china, and I'm not sure exactly where it come from. I think that it was like back in the day, it came from jewelry, a jewelry store or something. Ladies, you help me. My wife is not here for me to lean on. But it, has, it was the old, it had like 24 karat gold around the edges. I mean, it's fancy schmancy. And we got like pieces from everybody. And it even have, it has little quilted containers that you zip up and stick back in the cabinet and never get them out ever again. <laughs> and in fact, I think in our whole married life, we've used them about twice, maybe. No more than that. But I remember when we first got married... If we had somebody coming over really important, like the pastor, let this be a lesson. 
J.C. would drag out in the fine china, and we would serve a meal on this, on this fine china. And then also, when, when my wife's mom died, J.C. inherited this big set of holiday plates. There was these big, it's made by some kind of famous pottery. They're real, real old, and they have all these designs on them, all these autumn colors, and J.C. even got like tablecloths and napkins and placemats and all different colors to the same colors on the plate. So like for Thanksgiving, she sets this table with all this fancy holiday cookware. And it's just, and here's the thing. When, when someone comes over to our house for a meal and they get the china, we are making a statement to them, right? Or when somebody comes over and sees the Thanksgiving table that my wife has just decorated with all this fancy stuff, we're making a statement to that person aren't we? Well, here's the thing. We also have a set of Corel. Anybody else? <laughs> I think we got a whole bunch of them when we, when we first got married. And this is kind of the way ours look. We have all kinds of different colors. They're all different. And I don't know where they came from. We got some of the, most of the ones we bought. I think we bought them. Maybe we got them at a, at a wedding shower or something, but they're pure white, and we have some of the blue ones, and we have some of the green ones, and I don't know where they came from. My, probably our parents retired and gave them to us, or I think a lot of times if we take something home from the church, we take the dish out of the dishwasher and just put it back in the cabinet. We don't we steal from the church. We just keep the Corel dish there. And also, I used to think the Corel dishes were unbreakable. No, they're not. But you know something else about Corel dishes? They multiply. Because I keep breaking them and the stack keeps getting higher. I don't know how that works. So what I'm telling you is we have china and we have the fancy holiday plates and we have Corel dishes, but also we always have a stack of paper plates. Thank you for those amens. <laughs> and we have like plastic cups that have Mayor McCheese and the Hamburglar on them and things like that. And we break those out when the most important people in our lives show up. They're ages 12 and 14, and they have the same last names that we have. And our, our, we don't get out the china when our grandchildren come over, but we're not making a statement with our dishes. We're making a statement with how we treat them. Because here's the thing. We, we want our grandkids to feel free to go and raid the pantry and find what they want. We want them to go and pull open the freezer and find the ice cream that J.J. bought just for them. And, and they find that there. Because the point is, they're, they're family. We don't want them to feel welcome because they're special. We want them to feel welcome because they're family. They're always welcomed guests at our table, right? Now, listen, we would never expect our grandkids to modify their behavior to gain our acceptance or to gain access to our stuff. We love them just like they are. They have flaws, and we're aware of those flaws, but we don't care because they're family, and they know that. So here's what I'm saying to you. We do not make ourselves more valuable to God by cleaning up our act. Although we must. But that's not how we gain access to the Father. 
And God does not love us more because we memorize Scripture or drop more money in the offering plate. In fact, if I could be so bold, let me just tell you that a lifetime of sacrificial ministry on a foreign mission field does not turn God's head. God loves you because you're His, period. And when we're feeling stressed and panicked about the life we're living, and when we're almost overcome by despair and fear is crushing us, we need to remember that we have a place at the Father's table. So let's pull up a chair. Thank you, Jesus, for incredible, awesome, inexplicable love. And I'm absolutely sure, Lord, that you want to reassure a handful of people in this place today that they're loved despite what they're going through. I believe, Father, that you want to set some people free from the darkness they've been walking in, and you want to do it instantly, miraculously this morning. I believe that you want to heal people that have been dragging a disease, be it physical or emotional or spiritual. They've been dragging this ball and chain of sadness for far too long. And today you want to set them free in Jesus' name. We're going to give you room to do that.